1: Welcome to the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, a podcast about the United States and the world in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. I'm your host, Michael Patrick Cullenane. On the 23rd of April, 1902, a major disaster struck the Caribbean island of Martinique when Mount Pelé erupted. It began as a sulfur cloud and the accumulation of dust. But within a week the volcano was belching out huge volumes of ash and rock, erupting every 5 hours. Volcanic lightning, tidal waves, earthquakes, fires and a constant barrage of ash and rock poured down upon the island and its residents. It cut off Martinique from its neighbors, it starved livestock, it choked human inhabitants and it destroyed shelters. Mount Pelé led to a rising scientific interest in geological disasters. It also marked a critical turning point for the disaster relief process, according to Professor Julia Irwin. The United States sent relief ships to Martinique after the volcano erupted to assist the survivors, and there was also charity drives in the United States. Today, we get a sneak peek at Professor Irwin's new book, Catastrophic Diplomacy, U.S. Foreign Disaster Assistance in the American Century. This book is going to have a significant impact on the field because disaster relief, like any other donation, often came with an ulterior motive or strings attached. It's important for scholars of the Gilded Age and Progressive Era because the wellspring of disaster diplomacy begins in the early 20th century, not with the Marshall Plan or with later relief plans. Professor Julia Irwin is Professor of History at the University of South Florida, and I could spend a whole show talking about her extensive CV. I recently read her article in Diplomatic History on Our Climatic Moment, which encourages us to think more about climate change, ecology, and the resources in our scholarship. Her 2013 book, Making the World Safe, the American Red Cross and a Nation's Humanitarian Awakening, has transformed the way that I think of NGOs and relief agencies as a kind of public diplomacy. Ian Tyrrell's idea of a moral empire came from his look at missionaries. Irwin's Red Cross has a similar conclusion after exploring that agency. I'm lucky to have her here giving us a preview. A big welcome to the show, Julia. Thank you very much. I appreciate you having me. Well, I think we're really lucky because um, having a sneak preview is is a rare gift. I mean, a lot of people that have come on the show have talked about the recent books that are out, but we're now talking about something that is to come, and uh, and I'm excited about that. And I wanted to know where you got the inspiration for the book. Obviously, your work has been on the Red Cross and humanitarian relief. Is that where it came from, or was there some other inspiration?
2: Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great starting question. So my first book was um, really focused on the First World War era and uh, the politics and, and social, the political and social history of U.S. foreign aid during the First World War and its aftermath. Um, in that book, I focused particularly on the American Red Cross, which in the early twentieth century really served as kind of the government's humanitarian arm, its humanitarian auxiliary. Um, in the course of that research, though, so this is my dissertation, my first book. So over a decade ago, um, I became I started noticing the Red Cross, as well as the government and the military, were also taking part in disaster relief operations. So as I'm looking through archival files, focusing mostly on war, all of a sudden I'm seeing earthquakes and tsunamis and floods and, and plague and all of these other things as well. And so I kind of had in the back of my mind that that would be an interesting thing to pursue. Um, so as I switched from the first book to the second book, um, it was really kind of switching from wartime to ostensibly peacetime disasters um, and kind of thinking about this, the particular politics um, of, of emergency
1: relief um, in times of catastrophe. So It does seem pretty natural and I, th- I think you're going to outline in the book the reason why you talk about natural disasters and I'm I'm saying natural disasters with the air quotes because you do a great job of saying, you know, natural disasters can be the result of, you know, uh, human inter- interventions as well. So why focus on the geological and meteorological and not on some of the other things like, say, a Chernobyl or a Johnstown flood? Yeah, well, it's
2: it's interesting. And when I started this project, you know, I think in some ways. I myself hadn't thought all that much about the, the unnaturalness of disaster. This is something that a lot of people in disaster studies recognize and certainly the more I read, the more I realized. Um, but in part, we have this kind of category that we call a natural disaster. Um, it's usually something caused by an earthquake, a tropical storm, a flood. Um, one of the points I make in the book and a lot of disaster studies scholars make is that really there's no such thing as a natural disaster. Um, a natural, What we call a natural disaster happens When a natural hazard, so an earthquake, a hurricane, you know, hits an old, uh, you know, affects an already vulnerable population. Um, But it's really the human choices that people make before, during, and after that hazard hits them that determine whether a disaster happens. Um, An example I like to give is that, you know, if if an earthquake today were to hit Port-au-Prince and Haiti um, as opposed to Tokyo, it would likely cause a larger disaster in one place than another because we have, you know, of you know, earthquake-resistant housing, the sort of money and resources that have put in, put into prevention, things like this. Um, in the past, though, and I think one of the things that I became interested in, in in writing is that a lot of the actors that I that I focus on don't think about it in this way. They're not disaster studies scholars of the twenty first century, right? That for them natural disasters are these real things right so they talk about natural disasters it's an, it's a category for them and it matters um it affects the way that laws develop so international humanitarian law develops you know different tracks sort of focusing on war versus you know wartime humanitarian issues versus peacetime um it affects bureaucracy it affects um insurance kind of decisions uh, a lot of insurance policies have provisions for so called acts of god um so it really does shape sort of how people can and do, societies can and do respond. And it also affects the culture. Um, so one of the things I, I saw and really regularly in a lot of these events is that many of the victims, the survivors of these catastrophes were often seen to be much less at blame or much more faultless for their suffering than uh, victims of other types of catastrophes. So that it was sort of easier to cast the blame if it's seen more obviously as an anthropogenic cause than, than a sort of Quote unquote natural one so that's kind of a lot of the the reasoning behind it um, and just um, investigating you know, the, these these events in that way
1: so. I mean that makes a lot of sense uh, natural disasters you can attribute to uh, as if well n- no one's responsibility so to speak and then uh, I suppose wars and other catastrophes maybe you can you can designate faults is there a geographical sort of connection to i mean can states respond better if they're closer is that tend to be the way it works or or do we see the us for example doing disaster relief on the other side of the the planet yeah yeah and
2: that's um so this is a major thing that changes over the course of the book and the research um in The 19th century. So my first chapter actually starts in 1812 with um, an earthquake in Caracas, Venezuela, which was then in the process of becoming independent from Spain. Uh, It's the first time the federal government gives money, um, allocates funds to survivors of a foreign natural disaster an earthquake. Um, it's 90 years before Congress does this again. So it's not until 1902. Um, Occasionally they allow military ships to transport aid um, and there's some assistance for famine and political upheaval, but these sort of sudden disasters, it's really, again, 90 years before the US government starts to respond in this way. Um, And one of the things I argue in my book is that a major turning point comes with the expansion of the US overseas empire. Um, When the United States acquires uh, territories and therefore military bases in Puerto Rico, Guantanamo Bay, uh, the Philippines, and soon thereafter the canal zone, all of a sudden you start seeing um, military troops delivering aid from these regions. They're using boats, they're taking um, rations, tents, blankets that were originally sort of stockpiled for wartime purposes and delivering them as aid. So geography matters. Um, And throughout the progressive era, certainly the, the early 20th century, most of the direct sort of hands-on aid that the U.S. is giving is throughout the Caribbean basin, Uh, so the Caribbean and Central America, um, and a lot of that is just by virtue of the United States imperial geography in that region. Um, We see it to a certain extent as well in East Asia, some of it coming from the Philippines. Um, Others, the U.S. infantry is stationed in Tianjin, China, um, which is a sort of treaty port. So during World War I, you see the U.S. military there taking part in a flood relief operation. Uh, so yeah, a lot of it really just has to do with, with geography and the ability to deliver aid quickly. Um, that earthquake I mentioned in Venezuela in 1812, it took about three months for the U.S. government to actually find out about it. <laughs> they respond fairly quickly, and then the ships take you know several more months to actually get there. So you know, while it's a nice gesture, it sort of doesn't do much to, to uh, respond to an immediate emergency. So I think technology and the sort of shifting nature of both communications and transport technology play a pretty major role in the book and and in the way that the u s can respond to
1: so fascinating, so how does it change then when we get to nineteen oh three when Martinique has the uh the volcanic explosion? How quick is the response then yeah nineteen oh two yeah so you yeah, so Theodore Roosevelt's just become president um
2: it takes a it's and now I'm blanking on the amount it's it's it takes a little bit of more time to get news because all of the telegram wires have been severed. <laughs> so people don't find out about it immediately, but it, it takes a day or two of the news to get to the United States. I mean, it's not very long, not, not months or anything. Um, and the response is pretty quick. Um, Congress um, sort of debates um, fairly quickly about whether to, uh, whether to respond to this catastrophe um, and ends up kind of allocating $200,000, which is a pretty substantial amount at that point. Uh, in relief, uh then ships are actually coming from some from the United States, but much more quickly from US territories nearby. Uh, so you actually have uh you know US US troops being sent with some of the aid from uh from
1: um you know Puerto Rico and, and Guantanamo. So we're talking days rather than months in comparison to before. I mean, that's fascinating. That case in particular really fascinates me. Um, But you have other cases in that first part of your book that look at disasters in Chile and in Jamaica as well. And these are sort of understudied, aren't they? I mean, have you found much on these two disasters? There's a
2: wonderful article in Diplomatic History, um, a number of years ago, so, about two decades, uh, I think it's I think it was in the late 90s, now I'm blanking, but a guy named William Tilton, uh, who wrote a wonderful sort of story about the Jamaica incidents as it became. Um, in this case, there was an earthquake in Kingston, Jamaica, uh, which was then a British colony. Um, U.S. troops kind of came in to deliver aid, and due to a series of miscommunications, essentially land-armed soldiers um, ashore without the governor's permission, um, it evolves into this enormous diplomatic kind of embolio, Bruhaha, whatever you want to call it, uh, it takes months of kind of back and forth negotiations between the British and uh, uh, and U.S. governments um, to kind of settle this. Uh, so it really becomes this kind of um, international incident. Um, there's another uh, scholar in the UK right now, Alex Goodall, who's actually working uh, on it. He and I were talking about it recently. So there, there will be more, I think. Uh, the Chile earthquake, though, I found very little, especially from sort of U.S. sources. Um, the you know, it's it's one of the first um, responses that the the American Red Cross the American Red Cross reorganizes in 1905. The Great San Francisco earthquake of 1906 happens, and it becomes one of the Red Cross's first kind of testing you know, major disasters following its reorganization. This earthquake in Chile is just a few months later. Um, so the government taps the Red Cross to try to respond. They don't successfully raise very much money because they've just raised all this money for San Francisco, and there's what we would now call donor fatigue, um, but it happens that uh, the Secretary of State, um, Eli Hu Root, is in Chile. Or he's, in, he's nearby. He's not in Chile. He's in um, South America, though, for a pan, pan-American conference, and he goes there to sort of demonstrate the United States, you know, um, Sympathies and compassion—it and becomes a sort of moment of of Pan-Americanism. Um, at least that's how they try to pitch it. Uh, so yeah, there's uh, those responses. I think are really interesting and kind of each of them tells us something about both hemispheric and transatlantic Anglo-American politics at that period.
1: Strikes me that Theodore Roosevelt's administration might now be re- rebranded as the most disastrous administration <laughs> yeah. in American history. Exactly. <laughs> well, I think what's really great about the book too is that it is going to. It sounds like it anyway. And you can you can correct me if I'm wrong here. That it's writing across disciplines. I know you're a historian, but you've had to take on other sort of cross disciplinary thinking, at, at least in terms of natural disasters and environmental history. Um, how do you think cross disciplinary work in fields like disaster studies can you know, shed light or add some contours to historical errors that we think we have a handle on already.
2: Yeah, I I started my career, I actually entered graduate school in a program in the history of medicine and science. Um, so I thought I was going to be writing about epidemics and public health in urban US cities. That was my, you know, many years ago, that was my original plan. Within my first year of grad school, I discovered just how much I love this newly, what was then a sort of newly emerging field called the US and the world. Uh, US foreign relations, what used to be called diplomatic history. Um, and so my first book, which was Humanitarian Aid in the First World War, was really a way I bridged those interests and the history of medicine um, and health with the history of US foreign relations with international history. Uh, so that's where my sort of, you know, that's where I became, I guess, a historian of humanitarian aid in the first place. Um, but over time I mean I've, I've remained really interested in histories of medicine science and certainly the environment as well um I think a lot of the disaster studies literature is is um, focused on environmental history um and I see myself as sort of secondarily an environmental historian but I've certainly learned a lot from environmental historians uh, more properly uh thinking about you know the ways that humans and the environment humans and nature interact um the ways that we might you know think about the agency that nature exerts uh, the ways that we think about um humans in their environments too. And so that I think has really affected the way that I think about, again, natural hazards, about these types of disasters um, in, in useful ways. Um, so certainly that, that I think has been has been important. I've also had to read, I mean, just to understand what we now know about seismicity and about, you know, how tsunamis work and, you know, what, you know, what types of weather patterns account for, for flooding and for, you know, the Danube, River flooded in 1954 because it had been a really heavy snow year and all this out, you know, the, the alpine snow melt was heavier than usual. Things like this, right, that I didn't know that much about. So I think reading within sort of scientific and ge- you know, um, geological sort of literature has been helpful to just understand what's actually going on too. <laughs>
1: It definitely has a lot to offer, I think. I mean, especially the writing of environmental historians, it's super rich. I mean, you know, I can I feel like I'm in those places when they're talking about, well, in this case, natural disasters, but, you know, uh, Yellowstone Park or, or elsewhere, I find it really rich to read as well. Um, all right. Well, if we go back to the disasters, though, which are the ones that in your book or, or in your mind uh, really transform U.S. policy?
2: Yeah, so I think especially for the you know for this for the progressive era for for the you know this podcast one of the really major turning points for the United States is um, in 1908 so late 1908 December there's a major earthquake and tsunami in southern Italy um, it's the, in the Strait of Messina region which is the the um, water separating um, um, the toe of Italy from the island of Sicily. Um, it causes an extraordinary disaster. I mean, the, the death toll and just the number affected—the number affected are you know upwards of a million. The death toll is you know in the hundreds of thousands. Um, it's just an incredible catastrophe. It so happens um, that the Great White Fleet, that Theodore Roosevelt had sent around the world, the Atlantic Fleet, um, happened to be essentially about to go through the um, uh, the Suez Canal. Uh, so they're in the Gulf of Aden. And so they're able to send battleships um, to the scene. Um, They join um, members of the Russian and French and British navies that are also there, as well as the Italian military. Um, But they send four battleships to the Great White Fleet, as well as two sort of cargo ships, auxiliary ships, one from the United States, one from Constantinople. Um, And they all sort of converge and then take part in the assistance operation. The U.S. Congress uh, gives money to this as well. They give $800,000, which at that point was completely unprecedented in terms of largesse. Um, The American Red Cross raises over a million dollars in donations. Um, So it's for the Red Cross. After this, um, you know, the San Francisco earthquake, this is its first really major foreign disaster relief operation that it takes part in. Um, So those sort of things are are combining at this period. um, That that really, it just marks this really immense. response on, on behalf of the United States. Um, and it's not just short-term relief. It actually evolves into a, about a six-month program of relief and then rebuilding assistance. Um, they use a lot of the congressional money to send lumber from the United States, um, as well as expert American carpenters, um, to, in their in their words, they're, they're experts. Uh, and they go and they build um, certainly almost 3,000 cottages. Um, they build a hotel um, to, to apparently to rekindle tourism, uh, they build an orphanage, they build sort of a hospital. I mean, so they do this sort of major rebuilding project as well. So it's one of the first times we also see not just immediate relief, but also this kind of longer term recovery and reconstruction assistance that will happen in other disasters as well. So I think that's really one of the, you know, that book or that event has an entire chapter dedicated to it in the book. And it really is a major, um, you know, major sort of, moment at which foreign disaster systems is clearly this important to U.S. foreign policy.
1: Do Agencies like, I don't know, the Department of War or the Department of State, do they refer back, you know, in later years, say in the Taft and Wilson administrations, are they referring back to 1908 and Messina and about the disaster relief that they gave them yeah. as a template? Yeah.
2: That one certainly, and I think when they later debate, um, occasionally when they'll debate later aid appropriations, um, they actually point back to that one as, as precedent. Like, oh, we did this in 1908. Also, we did this in 1902 with um, uh, with Martinique. There was the one in Jamaica in 1907 was not money, but some material assistance. So they are looking back at these as saying, you know, hey, we've done this. There is precedent for this. Um, so they're they're certainly aware of it. The Red Cross especially is really aware of its work in Italy. Um, in the the Panama Pacific Exposition, so the world's the the you know the fair of the Americas that's held in 1915 in San Francisco. Um, there's actually a scale model, a replica of the um, the the aid in Messina. So they have a scale model of the the disaster relief camp that the American Red Cross set up there. So it becomes kind of part of the the organization's collective memory as well. Um, they um, they work to make it part of the built landscape in in Italy as well, which is interesting. Um, These sort of cottages, which are supposed to be temporary, they're all branded, you know, a gift from the people of the United States or a gift from the American Red Cross. And there's actually reports of people going back there in the First World War in 1917 and 18 and seeing that they're still standing there. And so, I mean, there's this kind of legacies, too, of of these relief efforts that are that are there on the ground. So in various ways, it kind of lives on in, in different institutional and collective memories, too.
1: Great. I think that the book it sounds like it's also going to talk about the legacies of disaster relief and American imperialism. It's, well, it sounds like from what I've read anyway that you shared uh, that's going to be a major connection and and that echoes some of the work of other scholars like uh, Ian Terrell and others. And I was wondering if you could expand on a little on that a little bit now and tell us a little bit more about how disaster relief became a part of US policy and then a part of like that branding that you're talking about that can be easily connected to imperialism.
2: Yeah, no, and I think that that's, that's a really great question. So thinking about, you know, the the story I'm really telling in my book is how disaster relief became an instrument of foreign policy, a tool of US foreign policy. Um, there's a sort of common narrative, I think, when, when I've read this in sort of uh, popular histories of U.S. foreign aid that you know, U.S. foreign aid began with the Marshall Plan. I've seen this on institutional websites. You know, the USAID has like this is the Marshall Plan, 1948. That's the beginning of U.S. foreign aid. And a lot of what I'm trying to say in my book is actually there's much longer histories um, of this, certainly dating back to the early 20th century and in some cases before. Um, but it's really one of the things I argue that it's in the tw- early 20th century that the US government and its partners in the military and the American voluntary sector really start to respond to disasters in other countries on a consistent and routine basis. So sometimes those are very small responses. It can be as little as sending $500 or even you know a presidential telegram, sending sympathies for the distress, things like this, but that's a response. And it's a diplomatic gesture that's that becomes really important um, to, to these people. So seeing it as a way to demonstrate um, the beneficence of American power, to win hearts and minds, um, to hopefully, you know, in some places, especially that are important to U.S. economic interests, uh, to get trade going again, to play, you know, to minimize unrest, um, you know, to make sure that laborers are essentially getting back to work. I mean, this becomes an issue and the Caribbean and Central America and places where United Fruit Company, for instance, is um, has a huge footprint. Um, responding to disasters isn't just about altruism, it's about making sure that banana plantations and coffee plantations are back up and running so that trade can start up again. And this kind of leads to thinking about empire, right? If we're talking about US empire in this period, um, certainly I've already talked about the formal elements of that, right? The the acquisition of territories in and, and Puerto Rico, the canal zone, um, Guantanamo, building bases, and then sending troops from these places. Um, but this is also certainly a, a evidence of, you know, American soft power in these regions. You have a lot of American consuls and diplomatic officials who are there. Um, you have large American expat communities in a lot of these places or business interests. Um, so it becomes tied to, the, you know, the ways that the United States is projecting economic power and cultural power in these years. Also becomes tied to to disaster aid in important ways. So I think kind of. Um, It shows us, I think, kind of the footprint of the United States in the world in the early 20th century, um, to think about what parts of the world matter, (laughs) um, what parts of the world are getting disaster relief, and then what parts are being ignored. Um, By and large, the US is not sending much aid to colonies of other European empires, um, which is interesting. So um, most of of Africa, most of South and Southeast Asia is under imperial rule at this point. and I see very rarely the U.S. sending any aid um, because it's assumed—it's a sort of international norm and assumption—that it's the governments, you know, the imperial governments that should be providing aid. We know now that you know that was never, you know, often wasn't happening or certainly wasn't happening as it as it should have. Um, but there was a sort of assumption that that was the territory of other empires, um, whereas the Caribbean Basin is sort of imagined to be, you know, an extension of the United States for a lot of policymakers. And that becomes a kind of central point for um, for USA.
0: I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me.
1: For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me.
0: Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
1: I suppose the debate with the Marshall Plan, historiographically speaking anyway, has been, it's been like raked over a million times. And, and there's been those people that have said, well, you know, the, the Marshall Plan, there was an altruistic element to it. Um, I don't think that's necessarily the orthodoxy or the consensus now, but that was an argument at one stage. Is there any argument to be made at any stage during the 20th century that the United States does make a genuinely altruistic, you know, no sort of strings attached donation, loan or or, or support in any sort of way? Yeah absolutely i mean so one of the things that i love so much about writing about humanitarian aid and thinking
2: about this for the past however long 20 years 20 plus years is exactly that it's it's far too simplistic i think to say that it is simply an exercise in power right it's it's not or that it simply serves us state interests um, and that there's no altruism involved it's equally simplistic, I think, to to simply you know, oh, this is such a nice act, right? This is a you know, generosity, beneficence on behalf of the U.S. In fact, it's both, and it can be both at once. And I think we see this especially looking at individuals who are involved. Um, so a lot of the people who commit themselves, their careers, their you know, um, um, who volunteer. Um, you know, sometimes lifelong, sometimes in, in a specific event, of course, they're doing so because they want to help other people. And they're not sort of saying, you know, sitting there saying, should I give this aid because I'm an agent of empire, right? This is <laughs> it's too simplistic. So there is a lot of, of altruism and just genuine care and concern. Um, when you read things like the congressional record or kind of decisions about committing aid, um, a lot of the speeches in Congress and by, you know, congressmen, senators are very much, you know, talking about the the care, the compassion that they have too. So I think that can and does coexist though with the decision to, you know, doing these things to serve U.S. interests. So whether it's sort of strategic interests in a certain region and making sure that, you know, allies, you know, feel cared for or that, you know, um, potential enemies are are swayed to the United States, uh, whether it's economic, as I mentioned, with with things like U.S. industries in those regions, um, you know, what I, I think all of these things can and do coexist at once. And that's what makes it really interesting to me in a
1: lot of ways, so. Well, the flip side of that is also, is there ever an a, an incident where the United States gets involved and it actually makes matters worse? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, so I, I mentioned
2: Jamaica, right? I mean, this sort of, this just incredible diplomatic kerfuffle um, that, that emerged. But I think, you know, for a lot of people, and it, it often, aid often replicates existing power imbalances in places. Um, so there are a number of cases where um, elites may be feeling like they're they're doing well, but um, but you know not the sort of everyday recipients of USAID um one of I think the more interesting case studies, and this is moving a little beyond the progressive era, but 1931, uh, there's an earthquake in Managua, Nicaragua. Uh, US Marines are still occupying that country. They've been occupying on and off since 1912. Um, they're about to leave, but there's still a thousand in the area. Um, they, if you read the Marines um response, they immediately declare martial law so that they can restore order. Um, this earthquake also caused a lot of fires, which happens with earthquakes because you know gas lines burst, things they They claim to put out the fire to reduce looting, to to and then you know create to you know make sure that everyone's taken care of. It. So that's the Marines narrative. You start to read local papers, both in Nicaragua and other parts of Central America, and there's a very different narrative, um which is that the Marines set the fire. Um, that the disaster was exacerbated, you know, it was an earthquake, but it was exacerbated by these occupying forces. Who, you know, there's a lot of animosity um, to that. And these sort of these narratives circulate. To um, there's there's reports of Marines just sort of shooting looters um, or not looters on site. Uh, so there's there's reports of, of you know, murder essentially that is that is written off as as you know getting rid of looters. So cases like this, you know, and I think one of the things I say in the book is what really happened doesn't even matter um, in some ways. Um, What matters is how people perceive um, the the presence of of marine forces and and the power that they're exercising, what that tells us about um, existing relations with the United States and with the U.S. military in these regions. Um, So I think that that's that's a useful case study, but you see this on Sort of more minor scales in a lot of places. There's a lot of resistance. Um, sometimes the aid that is given isn't really welcome or needed. Um, sometimes uh, there's there's a lot of efforts to really um, make sure that the aid is only reaching so-called worthy people, right? So there's there's um, efforts to you know investigate. Um, to investigate aid recipients to make sure that they're really deserving of aid, um, they're they're kind of made to go through the, these processes. Sometimes they have to get letters of recommendation from elites, uh, you know, local elites who testify that they're actually victims. So there's a lot of both paternalism and honestly racism uh, involved from a lot of the the people who are administering this on behalf of the United States, um, who tend to be either military officials, um, uh, diplomatic officials, or like Red Cross people sent from the U.S.
1: So one other question on this, you know, about the the sort of the range of experiences, it, it seems like what you're saying, too, is that as American power expands throughout the 20th century, so does the relief assistance programs for, for wherever it might be in the world, geographically, it expands too. Is it because... Is it because the US can simply do that because of its reach, or is it also because of the changing technologies, globalization, that the, the means of reaching these places has become, well, the world has just gotten smaller, I guess. Is that one explanation yeah. too?
2: Yeah, no, and I think it's it's both right, but the latter is really, I mean, again, geography matters. Um, so the first part of the book, um, you know, really the the early 20th century, you see most of the aid. Focusing on the Caribbean Basin where you can deliver aid quickly, or in East Asia, like basically where people are are, are and are stationed. By the time you get to the late 20s and early 30s, um, with the rise of civilian aircraft, so it's not even military aircraft, um, you start to see the U.S. delivering aid to South America by uh, by plane. Um, so Pan Am, Pan American Airways, really becomes this kind of partner with the government. They loan out a lot of their their aircraft. Um, to to deliver this aid. Um, Shipping companies do this as well earlier, so United Fruit, um, Grace Lines, um, they lend out their ships to the government as well to transport some of this aid. Um, But again, going back to airplanes, it it allows the U.S. to extend its humanitarian reach, essentially, uh, much further than it was able to before. Um, The real major turning point comes with World War II. Um, So the U.S. enters that war with a handful of overseas military bases and leaves that war, at least temporarily, with 2,000 military bases and access rights to 30,000 smaller installations and airstrips and things like this. Um, that number declines after the war itself, but the U.S. still essentially becomes what one scholar has called an empire of bases. Um, so you have people stationed all over the world, um, either as as military people, you know, military troops, or as, as diplomats, later as development workers, um, and they essentially become first responders for the U.S. government. The military, by the by the forties and fifties can send planes to basically anywhere in the world uh, within a matter of hours you can just respond much more quickly than you would have been able to
0: um,
2: in the early 20th century. So it really makes a difference. And certainly they're hearing about these things more quickly too, right? Thanks to faster communication so they can kind of make these faster decisions. Um, so yeah, just the, the role of technology there is really um, is really sort of central to kind of thinking about how and where the US carries out humanitarian operations.
1: It does seem to be such a huge part of how we react to things nowadays. You know, just with the advances that have been made in the sort of information age. I guess that naturally during the twentieth century that would have happened too. I wonder as well, are there any acts of punishment? You know, does the United States either withhold or uh, I I don't know? Do they do they get involved and intervene in ways that are designed to punish a nation state for either you know working against its interests or 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 I don't know? I mean, you, you tell me
2: yeah, I'm trying to think of of so, so I think one of the the best cases is china. um China is the the largest recipient of one of the largest recipients of u s aid in the early twentieth century. Uh, in part that has to do with a large missionary presence there, um a number of consuls who are on the ground because of sort of trade and interests. Um, the American Red Cross takes a very early interest in China and sends a lot of money there for f- both flood relief but also famine relief um, and um uh, I mean, there's an outbreak of of um, plague in Manchuria, for instance, so they're doing a lot of stuff in the early 20th century. As you get into the 20s and 30s, um, and especially in the 30s with the onset of the Depression as well, there comes to this. Uh, they, they issue a report in the late 20s that kind of basically says, you know, China is like throwing, you know, th- like it's like throwing our money away. We're just going to stop sending aid there. And, th- and they do. Um, so one of the worst, arguably one of the most catastrophic disasters of the 20th century occurs in 1931 in China, major flooding, um, like tens of millions of people displaced, you know, wide numbers of casualties. The amount of money that the U.S. government provides is paltry. It's something like, you know, the, the American Red Cross and the government together send something like $100,000 and then some shipments of U.S. wheat. Um, it's a response, but like compared to the actual devastation, it's, it's nothing. And it it's you know, I don't know if punishment is the word as much as it is just sort of giving up or or kind of, you know, kind of making this decision that, that you know, it, it's again, the sort of assumptions, cultural assumptions that like, these people cannot help themselves to use their words to use their kind of logic. Um, so therefore, we're not going to anymore. So I think you really do see that kind of coming out. Um, in terms of punishment, you know, I think there are certainly throughout in various different places, decisions about whether local governments and local, you know, civil society essentially is advanced enough, civilized enough to use their words, um, to administer aid on their own. So in a lot of countries, so in Western Europe, a lot of times what happens is the US sends money, turns it over to the local Red Cross Society or the local government and says, you know, here here's the gift of aid we're sending. Um, if you look at other, you know, Central and South America, they're almost always appointing. Um, U.S. officials to administer the aid to make sure it's properly administered. Um, so there's a lot of concern about, you know, keeping things out of hands of, of elites who might be seen as, as, you know, not using money in the correct way uh, or keeping hands out of survivors, you know, people, ordinary people who, who are you know, seen as sort of milking the system. Um, so I, I don't know if that still fits into punishment, but it's, it is a sort of sense of like, you know, who, who deserves aid and who, who can be trusted in some ways to administer it properly.
1: It also seems like there's this uh, connection between disaster relief and public diplomacy, which is, I I know that that practice and that terminology is probably more mid to late 20th century, but I would argue much in the same way you're arguing that that idea of public diplomacy really got started well before that uh, in the early 20th century. And I was wondering, does the United States combine some of its public diplomacy efforts or even cultural diplomacy efforts, things like educational exchanges, do they they uh, parlay those with disaster relief programs as well?
2: Yeah. And certainly, I mean, you know, going back, I mentioned in Italy, um, making sure that every building that they put had things like a gift from, you know, a gift from the people of the United States. I mean, this is, we we see this in other, especially these longer term disaster relief operations. So Italy, um, in Japan in 1923, there's a major earthquake in Tokyo and Yokohama. Um, The U.S. builds a a hospital that is um, kind of, a number of hospitals actually, um, but they're all they all have plaques on them that say you know a gift from the americans where you know it's about franco or i'm sorry it's about Jap- u.s japanese amity and kind of you know these, these ties um and you see that in a lot of other places as well if they're leaving kind of permanent institutions as a way to yeah as public diplomacy right it's like we were here don't forget that that the united states provided aid in your time of need um so that's certainly there um you know, in terms of kind of people-to-people stuff, there's there's a lot, my book focuses more on what we might call official relief operations, so that those that the U.S. government and its partners, its auxiliaries are involved in, um, but certainly there's a lot of uh, people-to-people diplomacy going on as well, um, you know, um, church groups, communities, um, you know, uh, sort of uh, community chess, uh, local cities, you know, states raising money uh, for other places and kind of trying to you know, promote that those those acts of I think, you know, public giving and generosity. Um and these are really played up certainly in the press um and uh, kind of emphasized by presidential administrations, you know, that that they there are all these sort of speeches talking about the generosity of, of the citizens and what they're doing. So they they really recognize this. And and I think you're absolutely right to to point to this period as this you know, growing concern with public diplomacy. Um, Susan Brewer has a really wonderful book called Why America Fights, and she's really looking at the kind of early origins of, of both public diplomacy and public information uh, and is certainly dating this to, you know, the, the wars of 1898 and World War I. And I think we really see it in, in disaster relief as well. Um, there is a consciousness that it serves U.S. interests, and they, they talk about it too. Um, um In sort of the, the Caribbean basin, the, the sort of the way that diplomats talk about it's serving um, first Pan-American connections and by the 20s, even good neighbor policy. So kind of predating, we, we think of the good neighbor program as a Roosevelt program, but they're actually using the term good neighbor as early as the 20s. And they, they talk about and put press releases out sort of saying that this is an example of good neighbor diplomacy in action. So yeah, they're, they're, very, they're very conscious of this, I think throughout and, and um, work to make sure that the recipients of aid know where the aid was coming from.
1: <laughs> It's interesting that you bring up the organizations as well. Obviously, your first book on the Red Cross, uh, the Red Cross features heavily here too. What are the other agencies that are leading the way? Are they and and, uh, and do they change? I mean, do we get like Ford Foundations and you know Rockefeller Foundations becoming leading uh, uh agencies in the in the later 20th century?
2: Yeah, so the, the American Red Cross up until World War II is um it is well, it's called <laughs> Taft called it this, he called it the nation's official volunteer aid agency, which I love this word, it's the official volunteer. So the Red Cross has a strange relationship with the government based on both the Geneva Conventions and congressional charters um, that really just create this unique relationship among, you know, what we would call NGOs, what they would call voluntary organizations um, that is kind of unlike any other organization. Uh, The American Red Cross, actually, its original offices were in the State War and Navy Department building um, before it got its own headquarters, which is conveniently located two blocks from the State War and Navy building in the White House. Um, So, I mean, it's, it's really, and there's a lot of just like, they're not just kind of working alongside each other, they're together, you know, the U.S., the State Department and the Red Cross are together deciding where they should send aid, how much aid to send. I mean, it's very much, you know, they're working collaboratively, not just alongside each other. Um, certainly, as I mentioned, there's a lot of other you know, non-governmental organizations and, and individuals who are taking part in aid themselves. So again, I'm thinking about this as the more official aid. but you have missionaries on the ground in, in China and the Middle East who are regularly taking part in disaster relief operations, um, expat communities in a lot of places are doing so as well. Um, often like um, an ambassador or something will appoint a sort of citizens committee um, who, who will then kind of be in charge of, of responding. Um, so there's a lot of kind of unorganized or less organized relief. Um, the major turning point comes in World War II. Um, during World War II, there's you know, this proliferation of aid agencies. And in 1942, the Roosevelt administration, trying to like figure out how to manage all of this, creates a, a board, the War Relief Control Board, um, which requires all these new agencies, new and older agencies, to register with the state. Um, to, you know, the state has to grant them permission to provide aid abroad. Um, but they also, in exchange, get a number of benefits. Um, this lasts after the, it's basically after the war in 1946. The Truman administration makes this a more permanent body, um, and organizations that that register um, have these benefits, such as the the government gives them free acts or free shipping, um, so they can ship aid supplies. It's, it's subsidies essentially, but uh, pays them to ship aid supplies abroad. Um, also, grants them access starting in the late 40s and early 50s. To surplus agricultural commodities, so there's programs we now know as food for peace, um, but really that emerge out of the U.S. government buying up surplus agricultural commodities to assist the farm, the agricultural sector. They end up with all these surpluses, and then they say, "Oh, we can turn them over to voluntary organizations, and they can give them abroad as aid." So it's this kind of um, uh, it works there, but so they get access to this for free, and it really it funnels a lot of their budgets. And so after World War II, um, you start to have all these organizations that by virtue of registering with this body, have their own relationship with the state that's really kind of not like the red crosses, but much more formalized. Um, So, and it's really here that I start to see things like church world service, Catholic relief services, CARE, um, the American friends to a certain extent, um, a number, especially religious um, faith-based organizations, as well as some more secular organizations, um, but forging their own partnerships with with the U.S. government. Um, So that's kind of the, the shift that occurs there.
1: This is a slightly unfair question and I hope you'll forgive me for asking it but given your expertise in the field what are the lessons for today I mean what can we take from the history and apply it to cuz I mean these natural disasters are only going to get worse and worse as climate change bites so what 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 do we learn from this
2: Yeah no and I think you know and I hope people learn from history right this is what you know I, I want to imagine right that, that people can learn and think about historical examples and you know I think one of the things I try to do in the book is to show examples of what went wrong and what went right. <laughs> um, and then to think about why, and I think, you know, aid works best when it's not a sort of donor giving to recipients and expecting gratitude and return. And then, you know, when it's as apolitical as possible, right? So, I mean, aid will always be political, but uh, when it is a much more collaborative enterprise, when um, people who need, or who are on these sort of receiving end of, of aid are, are counted as partners in this exchange, um, that, makes aid work better um, when aid is, you know, when you can remove as much as possible, the sort of political motivations from aid, and then really think about it being more of a, you know, humanitarian enterprise. Um, And then I think finally, the, you know, I think one of the takeaways is from studying natural, you know, so-called natural disasters is, again, that disasters aren't natural, and we can prevent a lot of disasters uh, if we would spend money and resources in the first place in installing things like tsunami early warning systems and, you know, earthquake proof housing or resistant housing, um, ensuring basic infrastructural improvements um, that, you know, make less wealthy nations more, you know, more able, more resilient against disaster against disasters in the first place. Um, you know, I think that kind of requires an entire revolution of the you know international capitalist system, but uh, you know, one can, one can imagine. <laughs> so, yeah.
1: Brilliant. Um, I've got one more question, and this one is also unfair, and I apologize. But having spent I don't know how many years studying disasters, are is your next project going to be on rock and roll or something that's going to be yeah. so much fun that you you just forget all of the disasters? Or are you gonna you gonna you gonna double down? Yeah, I went from war to
2: disasters. I the answers I don't know, and I've been trying to figure out what the next project is, and I'm still. Um, I really really love food. I love to cook. I love to eat. When I study food, it is mostly in terms of like care packages and food aid, which is not very very exciting. Um but part of me daydreams about like a more fun food history project. Um but I yeah, I, I got to finish this one first, I mean. <laughs> I'm not the kind of person who can balance and juggle multiple ones at once. But no, it's it's I think I've thought about it before. So, either that or climate change. I don't know if it'll be yeah. <laughs> how, how fluffy I want to go versus how uh, serious, but yeah, stay tuned.
1: Brilliant. Well, thanks so much for joining the show. And uh, thanks so much for just uh, filling us in on this. Well, uh, giving us a sneak preview of of what comes next. Uh, I know it's going to be very anticipated. So, yeah, thanks a million, Julia. Thanks
2: for having me. It was great. I enjoyed the conversation.
1: Thanks. Well, that's all we have time for. Thanks for listening. You can follow the Gilded Age and Progressive Era on Twitter or on my website, michaelpatrickculinane.com. Please consider subscribing or reviewing the podcast wherever you listen because it really makes a big difference and helps direct others to the show. I hope you'll join me again for the next episode. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer.